Welcome to Karine and Rose's EdTech Roundup. Now, in this episode, in this series, we will spend about 40 minutes looking at what's in the news. We will have a chat with someone from the world of EdTech or discuss a product review. We'll also give you our topical top tech tip for the coming week, and we'll discuss some of the questions that our viewers have sent to us. Now, today, we're really lucky to welcome two guests. So we have Raj Ayer and Kavita Ravinda, for our co-founders of Synaptic, which is an AI-driven web app for the interactive practice of open-ended questions in GCSE science with instant qualitative feedback. So hello to you both. But first, before we begin, let's start with what's in the news. So what is in the news today then, Rose? Well, something that really caught my eye this week is a report from the Centre for Social Justice that is actually really worrying because it reveals that a quarter of a million children enter secondary school without basic maths and English. Now, that is in the UK, but this is not just a UK problem. I searched around and found an interesting report from the World Bank. And by the way, links to the reports that I mentioned will be in the pod notes for anybody who's interested. And that summarises that actually this is a worrying issue across the world. We know that, you know, the latest US maths and reading scores also show a decline due to the pandemic's related limitations on schools, schools closures. And this whole issue is being referred to as learning poverty. And I really think we need to think carefully about how technology can help us to address these issues of of this learning poverty. Because really, You know, if young children are reaching the age of 11 or 12 and they don't have basic maths and English skills, that's a real worry because they're just going to get left behind. And then it's a worry for their future. So I think we could have a look at, you know, how can technology help with this? So obviously, we're very evidence based. And what's wonderful about having Raj and Kavita here today is that we're going to talk about how they look at generating evidence of the extent to which their app is being impactful or not. So I looked around to see what might be useful for listeners that we could say about the ways in which technology might help with this problem. And I've just got, you know, one example. Again, we'll put the the link in the pod note so that people can take a look. I wanted to look for something that was a technology that you could use out of school as well as in school, because obviously a lot of this learning poverty is driven by children not being in school. And uh, it's a really nice report from the Nuffield Foundation looking at maths apps. Now, obviously, a lot of maths apps are the kinds of things that, you know, parents encourage their children to use, but also teachers too. So broadly interesting. It's a nice report. Obviously, as I've said, we're interested in evidence. So just to tell you that it's a systematic review is the method that's been used to look at the evidence about whether these maths apps really add value to children's learning. And also the researchers who conducted this work looked at the content and the design features of the maths apps that they explored. And most of these maths apps were for children aged four to seven in the UK or five to eight in the US depending on where you're using the app and the nature of the way the app is described for the particular curriculum in the different countries. And so what kinds of apps are we talking about here? 
Well, most commercial apps would be described as practice-based apps. And what that means is that they're designed to support the acquisition of learning content, you know, mathematical facts and concepts through targeted practice. That's what we mean. And examples would be 1 billion maths 3 to 5. But there are also game-based apps out there like Slice Fractions where they're still basically practice-based, but it's rolled into an, more of an immersive game environment with a sort of player narrative. You also have some constructive apps like Montessori Numbers for Kids where the, the idea is that children are encouraged to explore um, and manipulate mathematical ideas and concepts some productive apps where you're actually wanting the children to produce their own content like Quizlet Plus. And finally, parent-based apps. I thought this was interesting. Um, and the example here would be bedtime math. So primarily designed to be used by parents or caregivers to encourage offline interactions and learning opportunities with children. So it's quite a range, but most of them do fit into that practice-based. So Key question, what did these researchers find? Now, it's a great report. I really encourage listeners to, to download the report. It's free. But the headline finding is that children's learning outcomes when they use these maths apps were maximised when the apps were of the sort that provided scaffolded or personalised learning journeys. So feedback to help the learner take their own path through the contact material. Plus, the app needs to have explanatory feedback and motivational feedback, you know, great job, this kind of thing. And that really rings true, Karin, with what we talked about before Christmas when we were talking about, you know, if you're going out there to buy some educational technology, what kinds of things might you look for? And we talked a lot about the need for decent feedback, basically, to help people have an individualized experience. But just a few more headline facts that I thought were quite interesting. This one really caught my eye. Six of the 25 most popular commercial educational applications that are identified as being maths, when you search for them, do not include any maths content, which I thought was fascinating. And then the other fact that I found really interesting in this report was that only one of the apps in the top 25 has actually been empirically evaluated. And that's one billion maths four to six. And there's a really nice summary of a couple of empirical studies done with that particular app that does, you know, demonstrate that in particular for low achieving children, using that maths app for a period of 12 weeks showed significantly greater improvements when compared to a business as usual control group of children who weren't using the app, you know, of a similar type. All children who were underachieving, in other words. And I think that's really interesting. So I think there's some good evidence there to show that can, with a well-designed app, improve learning outcomes, but you need to use them in a particular sort of way. So finally, you know, what can you learn if you're a parent and teacher and you're thinking, okay, right, which app should I go for? Because there's hundreds and hundreds of them out there. You know, the advice that comes through in this report is really clear. Three things you need to think about. When trying the apps for the first time, consider whether the child can meaningfully interact with that app, particularly based on their existing mathematical 
and language skills? You know, have they got the prerequisite skills and abilities to interact with a particular app? Secondly, you know, think about how the chosen maths app can be implemented in the classroom if you're a teacher or in the home if you're a parent. You know, does it include areas of maths that children need extra support with? You know, what support may children need in order to use the app effectively? So what can you do to increase the extent to which they get value from interacting with that app? And finally, and this very much reiterates what I've already said and what we said before uh, Christmas, Karine, you know, does the app contain explanatory feedback whereby it explains why a response given by the child is correct or incorrect and, and really also helps to provide that scaffolded, personalised interaction with the child. So I thought that was a really interesting report from Nuffield with some very helpful practical tips about ways in which the kinds of application that young children could be encouraged to use could help with some of that learning poverty. Now, of course, there's a cost to some of these apps, and that's something we have to take into account. But I do feel technology has an important role to play when we look at how we do tackle issues like learning poverty. And that's really important, particularly when we want to close the gap for some of our learners um, and not keep getting them to do the same thing that they can do well. Because often when children study, they tend to go for things they understand no one can do because it gives them a feeling of, I've, I've done it, I understand it, when actually we want to help them with the things that they're struggling more with. So the feedback, as you mentioned, is really hugely vitally important. What I saw in the news is something that made me laugh this week. So a little bit of light humour here. Um, but also has an important uh, an important message for the government. The government, the UK government's apprenticeship website has hit a roadblock. And it's all because of a few controversial words. The website is reportedly rejecting job postings that contain words like man, stripper, head. Even though these are common everyday words that have been used in the industry for years, they're causing a fuss. Now, how does that affect people? Well, among some of the rejections was a post on the Isle of Man um, because of the word man. A head chef was blocked for the word head and a stripper was stopped for a, a, ve a vehicle stripper apprenticeship from being advertised. Now, Jenny Bicknell, the director of Education Solutions at Get My First Job, or Get My First Job, spoke to some of the employees who were affected by these changes and they are frustrated to say the least. They're having to change their job postings. And what it's doing is slowing this recruitment process for the apprenticeships that are much needed down. Now, Tom Bewick, the CEO of the Federation of Awarding Bodies, thinks it's just another example of the infamous computer says no. He believes that the algorithm needs a sensible override function and that these online bots are programmed by humans. So we need to be careful about what we allow them to censor. Now, the Department of Education is aware of the situation and is working to resolve this. And we need to hope that they get to the bottom of this soon, because remember that the government is trying to increase apprenticeships, um, especially after the pandemic, and the censorship is just not helping their cause. Now, Rose, in your opinion, what do you believe they could do to ensure a smoother process for firms posting apprenticeship vacancies online? Well, I definitely agree that there's a problem there with the algorithm, isn't it? I mean, it's completely the wrong way around, isn't it? Where the people posting the job 
are having to censor their applications to make sure it doesn't include the words that the algorithm is quite wrongly blocking. Yeah, it's definitely wrong there. So first of all, the algorithm needs to have been designed with a much greater appreciation of what the actual task at hand was here and the kinds of job descriptions that are going to come in and that are acceptable. I suspect, though I don't know, because I don't know exactly what the technology behind this is, but it, it looks to me like it might be a rather old-fashioned algorithm um, that doesn't have the capability to learn and improve and to understand from a set of job applications what is appropriate and what isn't appropriate. I remember decades and decades ago when I was a student at Sussex University, the number of times that there were problems with my email address because it had Sussex were too many to count. They were in the early days of uh, you know algorithmic censoring, and it was obviously sorted out quite quickly. But really, we don't want to take a step back to those days. So we need much better designed algorithms that can learn and improve as well. So, and now to our main topic for today's episode, and that's focused on how edtech companies can set themselves up to ensure that the impact they want to have is one that their customers need, and that they know exactly what the impact is, and that they're able to generate sound data. And that's really important, particularly to school, for schools and learners, to demonstrate that their product or service is producing the desired impact. And I know, Rose, you've, you've touched on that with the earlier news of the week. So, Rose, help help us to understand what you know what this means in practice. Absolutely, it means that you need to have a clear theory of change in place for your product or service. You need to understand what success looks like. How do you want your audience, your customers, the people from whom you are for whom rather you are developing this piece of technology? What change do you want to bring about? That's where you need to start, and then you need to build up something like a logic model that will help you understand how you make the steps to progress your data collection and evidence generation to enable you to know whether you are or you are not bringing about that impact, that change that you've identified as being your desired outcome. And I'm really excited about having Raja Kavita here because they've been through the Educate program and because in November 2022, they were the winner of the Global EdTech Startup Awards. So affectionately known as the Giza Awards, um, largest ed tech competition and community in the world. And they were the UK um, semi-final winner with their company, Synaptic. And I'm really interested to hear from them about what they do. So Raj and Kavita, over to you. Please, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and about Synaptic first? so that the the listeners can get a sense of what it is you're doing. And then can you tell us a little about how you've gone about trying to think about the impact you want your product to have and how you can generate data to evidence whether it is or is not having that impact? Absolutely. Thank you ever so much. And it's such a pleasure to be over here with chatting about what we have, our journey and everything that we have been doing so far. So I'm Kavita. I've been a teacher for, for as long as I remember secondary science teacher in the UK for 13 years. And uh, and then, I mean, I never thought I would uh, stop classroom teaching. I enjoyed it so much. But the idea of Synaptic came about and uh, that was something that was like more like a calling that we that we took upon. So Synaptic is an auto-marking web app that evaluates descriptive answers in science and provides instant feedback. 
the feedback is really crucial here because it does, of course, give a score, but it also provides information on missed and correct concepts from the student answers. We know as educators, we know how effective it is. And uh, that's, that's exactly what Synaptic does. It not only evaluates the descriptive answers, but also provides that instant, effective, timely feedback. The tool really uh, solves two key issues that exist in education today. The first one being the lack of the instant effective feedback to students on answers that are longer than the simple one word or multiple choice questions. But that's enough tool that gives feedback on automated feedback on the one word or multiple choice questions, but that's nothing really for the application of the knowledge, which is where all the long answers come through. And that's where students lack confidence in, and that's what impacts their final grades. And the second issue is the overwhelming workload that teachers face when it comes to marking, but not only marking, but also deriving the insights from this marking. So of course, so, uh, these are the two issues that we are trying to solve. And the impact that we want to have, of course, is increased student outcomes and reduced teacher workload. But with a larger vision of making a tech-driven tool that offers personalized learning affordable and accessible to all our users. Now, a point over here that I always feel, you know, that is, is I feel it more now is that um, automation is there so much. It's like part and parcel of every sector that we see today around us other than education. There's very little automation in education. There's very little true use of artificial intelligence in education. And I think it's time that we have that and we are hoping that through Synaptic, we are the driver of that change uh, in this industry. So I'm going to pause there and let Raj introduce herself. Hi, I'm I'm Raj. Thank you so much for um, having us uh, on on the on the show, and um, I think Kavita has given a really good introduction on on what we're here for, and we're hoping to maximize the impact that you know artificial intelligence can really have on on um, some of the biggest uh, issues in education today, so student outcomes and um, and and teacher workload. And they are certainly two of the key issues that I know the Department for Education are particularly concerned about at the moment. So it, it's really interesting. And I love the idea of what you're trying to do with AI. And I couldn't agree more that there's not enough AI being used in education. Of course, the conversations about chat GPT have woken us up uh, to the fact that actually education really does need to to get to grips with AI. I mean, it's something that we've been saying for quite a long time now. And Karine and I, with our colleague Mutlu, have written a book called AI for School Teachers. So I'm totally with you there. Um, and I think if Synaptic can help uh, to really bring about increased use of AI, that would be absolutely brilliant. Karine, I know you want to ask, Roger. Yes, I did. I wanted to come in here because you mentioned um, very clearly that the, the part of what you're developing is to reduce workload, as well as obviously to aim enhancement in children's learning and understanding. Can you share with us your personal experience of the Educate program and how it equipped you to demonstrate the effectiveness of Synaptic in delivering, delivering on its promised outcomes? And the reason I'm asking that is in the light that many technologies aimed at supporting learning easing teacher workload, encouraging critical thinking and providing instant uh, feedback and identifying gaps really have fallen short of, the, of their promise. So what is it about that Educate programme that helped you achieve your goals? Absolutely. 
Rose mentioned a very interesting point as how, as an ed tech company, we need to start off with the base of theory of change and logic model. And I'm pretty sure if there are other ed tech founders listening to this, they would agree with us that not many of us really start over there. And speaking for myself, having spent 12 years uh, plus uh, just as a teacher and then switching over to an ed tech founder, I had a clear vision of what the pain point was and what is the problem we are trying to solve and how can we build a product that would be useful for teachers and students. But I had no clue. And I didn't even know that that was, you know, that we have to be at the product development stage itself. We had to be evidence-led and we had to be impact-driven. Um, and so it was like, for me, it was a total enlightenment. We we were able to Im- embed a lot of what onto our product development. So the educate program was extremely useful for me because it kind of the research questions that we can ask and we can we'll talk a bit more about it when we talk about logic model the theory of change itself and how we used it. But yes, I think for me coming from a completely non-research background, uh, asking those research questions and making sure that the product that the is impactful and then how we measure those impacts, I think that was really, really useful about how to set it and how to embark on that journey. And, and and Raj, what what about for you? How did it help you as um as the co-founder of uh, Synaptic? Absolutely. I mean, although I came from an academic background, I've been in research for many many years. Concepts of theory of change and logic model and so on was um, definitely theoretical knowledge that I had, but it really helped me you know, participating in the Educate program. Helped me to put all of that uh, you know theoretical knowledge in the context of product development. And like Kavita said, from day one, because we were part of this program, we made sure that, you know, all the way from technical infrastructure that we had in place was best suited to then help, you know, deploy an effective learning tool in the end, which will then help us to measure um, the impact and the outcomes that we hope to um, achieve from, you know, the, the two very clearly different uh, stakeholders, the pupils and the teachers. So all the way from, you know, thinking about the kind of data we need to collect from our users and, um, you know, how they might be actually interacting with the product and use the product to then achieve their own um, individual goals of, you know, improving their student outcomes, for example, or having an effective reduction in teacher workload. So um, absolutely, yeah, uh, it gave, it, it, it's a very different uh, perspective to um, actually using some of these theories to give give a foundation to, to product development. And I think at almost every stage of product development, we've made sure that we've taken a step back, thought about everything, put everything, you know, pen to paper, and then um, did, did the deployment in, in that way. Thank you. What would you say to people who are listening to the program who who actually are listening to this podcast who actually think, but yes, you know, that's great. But the point is it's taking time away from my development. Why would you spend the time coming to a program like Educate? What, what, you know, what is the rub there? Why did you do that? Because obviously you're going to spend a certain amount of time on the program, which is taking away the time when you could be developing. So what, what is it that you would say to these people who would say that's, that's all well and good, but it's taking time away from me, you know, and the development side. That is, yeah, you've hit the nail on the head uh, as founders. It's uh, very, very crucial. Uh, Time is really crucial. I think maybe it helped uh, to have come from an academic background because uh, it's, you know, data and being evidence-based and being data-driven has been at the heart of what we do on a daily basis. And 
um, that really helped us to almost seek out programs like, uh, you know, what Educate had to offer to make sure that we are measuring at every single stage, everything that we do. So in all the way from, even if it was, you know, marketing efforts or um, product development efforts, everything um, was designed in such a way that we could, there were measurable um, uh, outcomes in place. And, uh, you know, it's, trust trust me, uh, whoever's listening, that it's worth the time. And it's a lot of extra work to then go back when you realize that, oh, I wish I knew the answer. I wish I had a metric that would tell me what I should do next in, in you know, product development, for example. Um, it's a lot more difficult to retrace your steps back to then put the infrastructure in place. So I think um, as developers, uh, it's very, very important to have at least nail the data model, the backend data model, have that, uh, you know, the, the foundation for that in place. The logic model totally helps you to do that. And, uh, you know, suddenly you find yourself um, <laughs> sailing a very, very smooth uh, sea. Thank you, Raja. That saved you time in the long run. And also Absolutely. gave you effective feedback was another mechanism for effective feedback for you as a company. Absolutely. And um, uh, it's it hasn't stopped. You know, we, we started with, you know, a particular data model. At every point, I think the theory of change, uh, you know, we it can be applied at multiple aspects of edtech. So it's not just, you know, we, we're all here to improve, you know, student outcomes. Yeah, of course. But the theory of change can be applied and incorporated at different levels of, you know, your, your different uh, levels of uh, stakeholders that, that you're working for. So, for example, I just want to, you know, highlight. So we wanted to measure user behavior um, in terms of can we bring about change in our pupils just coming back to the product and using it maybe four days a week. Now, that's a that's a behavior change that we want to see in our users. So the theory of change can be incorporated to you know, measure and monitor and evaluate um, user behavior. From a teacher's perspective, that could be just uh, measuring, um, you know, having, having a better perspective or a, uh, being more open to using AI-assisted tools in the classroom on a day-to-day basis. Now, that's a behavior change as well. Um, and, you know, we have a logic model in place to help us incorporate these, uh, you know, the the, the 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 framework of theory of change. Uh, and, you know, maybe Kavita can go into a bit more detail on how exactly we um, use the logic model to then um, help us to uh, deploy these uh, these theories in practice. Absolutely. Uh, one thing that I wanted to mention over there was also that it's, it's not like pre-COVID where uh, today schools are are much more aware of what and much more critical about what ed tech that they choose. It was not like, you know, two years, three years back where they were they they didn't know, they didn't know about like evidence-based or kind of just went, went and signed up to any ed tech over there. That's not the case anymore. Schools really want a data-driven product. They really want case studies. They really want to know if the ed tech tool is actually doing what it says. So I think if that is what our market is, being as founders, it is really important that we have that in place. So it's for me, for us, it is more like a mindset. It's more like a culture that we have this framework that when we engage with schools, when we engage with teachers, we ask them, 
do you want to actually take part in a pilot to enable us to collect some data to, it could be we are trying to test if using synaptic actually reduces your teacher workload. Um, can we actually, uh, uh, you know, uh, measure if students' imp- uh, achievement is actually improving or if students' confidence is improving if they use synaptic? But unless we have these questions already in place and we know exactly how we are going to achieve this, we can't do it. So if we had a product out there, it is coming back to what Raj it's harder to go back and and with these things, it's more easier to kind of spend the time the time to understand what it is and to make sure that it's part of the journey that we exactly know what we are asking when we go to our stakeholders at the end. But coming to the logic model in itself, uh, it really helps us to find the impact of it, make sure that we know how we are measuring and when we are measuring it, make sure that we have the intermediate benefits as well to our users, not only the larger one, because to check if it uh, if using synaptic four times a week actually improves students' achievement might take longer time. But what can we do in between that goal? Like so we have that if that's your end goal, how can we break it down further to actually still collect some data and make sure that it is still benefiting our end users? But also analyzing, and this was really crucial and more like eye-opening for me, where we were able to analyze the granular level of all the assumptions we were making when we were creating a product that users will interact with our product. And we were assuming that, for example, with, with, with our tools, they would be assuming that all users, all students, all schools will have access to internet, access to device. It was such a simple thing. We were assumed that they would have the skills to know exactly how to sign up, log in, onboard students. So these were all the assumptions that we were making. But if we didn't have the logic model, we would not be able to analyze, we wouldn't have analyzed all of these in a granular de- detail to make sure that we have things in place and we could actually avert all you know, some of these problems. So we knew what the problems were and we actually had put things in place to address these uh, when we were, when we launched. So, and again, it's, it's something that we do every day. It's not something that is done and dusted and we don't think about it. It's part of Synaptic's uh, culture now. That's brilliant. And you answered the question I was going to ask because you get a great um, view on, on the value of a, a logic model and the kinds of things it can help you find out that you can't really find out unless you've got something like that in place. That was great. That was really helpful and useful and a great insight into the value of looking at tools like logic modeling and theory of change as a way of being able to have a a clear, structured process to help you continually um, generate the right kind of data and evidence to be able to really help your customers to understand what it is the impact of your technology is and whether or not you're achieving that impact. So thank you, Kavita and Raj. That was Great. Karine, are you happy with where we got to on that? Is there anything else you wanted to ask? No, I, th- I think that was really that was really comprehensive. And thank you both, because I think that's given our listeners, you know, really food for thought. And I think you've covered the key points. That was great. Thank you. So I think now we need to move move swiftly on and um, to our top tech tip of the week. Um, I'm going to start with one from Beverly Clark. Now, Beverly was the Tech Woman 100 Award winner, and um, she's an author and an educational consultant. And interestingly for our viewers, she publishes books um, on the digital adventures of Ava and Chip, which introduces young readers to the world of technology. And they go through a series of adventures with their mum. 
um, and, and explore the world around them and learn the impact, impact that technology has. And our recent release is Ava and Chip's Adventure with Self-Driving Cars. So that's good because there's, you know, obviously AI has a part to play there. Now, when I asked Beverly for her top tech tip, it was ensure that your ed tech purchase is compatible with the equipment that you already have. And that's really important because often we buy things and then are really cross when we can't make them interact with each other. Rose, have you got a top tech tip for us this week? I have. A, I've even got a topical top tech tip. <laughs> ah, <really laughs> better. I, I would say try synaptic. <laughs> that, that's very much at the heart of what we're talking about today. But it, but more generally, um, the, the top tech tip that I have for this week is something very practical, a a bit like yours from Beverly. And that is to just do an audit of your tech to make sure you're not paying for things you don't use. It's really easy to to set up continual payment for licenses or for storage, whether you're an individual teacher or a parent or a learner. It's really easy to do this. And then you keep paying and actually realize that you're not really using this particular application or this particular uh, facility. And I think it's even more true in institutions that you have somebody who comes along, is very enthusiastic about a piece of technology, introduces it, you know, sets up the licensing, they then move on. And yet that direct debit or that repeated payment on a credit card keeps going out and nobody's actually using the technology. So my, my top tech tip is to do an audit just of yourself or of your group or of your institution. And if it's at an institutional level, I'd also suggest that you look to make sure that if you have got a group of technologies, that you've also got people who understand how those technologies work. Because as I say, it can be the case that somebody's brought in a particular technology, a piece of software, a piece of hardware, you know, a particular feature. They've then moved on somewhere else and actually you're still paying for it, and you haven't got somebody currently on the team who does understand how to leverage that technology. So an audit may sound boring, but it can save you some money, and I think that's extremely important at the moment. Absolutely important, and particularly in schools, one of the things I always recommend is that people should do that because the number of uh, piece purchases where one person has bought it and left the school and there hasn't been a strategic plan in place to use it, and we find that it is, you know, good money thrown after bad. So really, really important. Start your own housekeeping before you move on. That's true. And actually, I realised we said to Raj and Kavita, we would ask them if they had a topical top tech tip. So we should do that. Do you have a topical top tech tip that you would like to offer to our listeners? Um, I have one. It's more like, um, I don't know whether it's a tip or a message, but it's for all teachers out there who are still very tech averse and afraid to take risk. And I would kind of, the big message loud and clear is please try it. If you have, if you come upon anything, if you have a request to try something, just try it out because you're not really losing anything. It might benefit you, it might not, but the least you can do is try it. Um, there is a big fear around AI, but there's this message that kind of I, I came across in one of the newsletters recently, which said AI is not going to take teacher's job, but if a teacher is not taking on AI, that is the bigger risk. In today's day that we are in, I think it's really important that teachers understand technology and adopt it because that's when they're going to lose out, not if they adopt AI or technology. That's brilliant. And actually, we've got to keep, I keep plugging, we're, we're, we're 
teaching children for their futures, not our pasts. And so that's really important. And, and one of the things, and I will mention it again, is that Rose McLuhan, myself, wrote a book, AI for Teachers. And it is for the teacher who is at the starting point, who wants to, or the head teacher, who wants to just understand a little bit more. And it's not a heavy read. It's only 85 pages. And it even gives you questions to answer and, and find out your problem. What's your problem? What is it you're trying to solve? And there'll be some things in there that you didn't realise AI could do for you in terms of reducing your workload. Load. So uh, really, really important. Thank you. Thank you, Kavita. Thank you, Raj. But just to say that on the topic of the book, we are making some chapters freely available as audio recordings. and. We'll have a link to those in the pod notes as they come out. You can watch out for those so that people can get a taste of the book um, for free. Let's go over, Rose, to the listeners' questions now, because we have one from Christine Bennett. Now, she's an experienced special educational needs and disabilities coordinator, and she teaches at Studley Green Primary School in Trowbridge. And Christine is interested in understanding more about the distinction between machine learning and AI. And she wonders if these terms are interchangeable. And she asked, can you provide some clarity on this? Rose? Ah, interesting question. And we might ask Kabita and Raj as well. (laughs) Just give you a heads up there. Um, Really interesting. And there is not a clear answer because people disagree about how to define AI. And some people would say that AI is only machine learning. Some people would say that AI is only deep neural network machine learning. But for me, artificial intelligence includes both the more modern machine learning and what we call the good old fashioned AI or GoFi that are really systems that have to be programmed in advance to behave intelligently. And the difference between the good old-fashioned AI and the machine learning is that the good old-fashioned AI doesn't learn. It doesn't improve. And machine learning, as the title suggests, the machine learns. So it improves. The more it interacts with people, the more it learns and the more it improves. So there's a clear difference between those two types of AI. And for some people, AI is only machine learning. But for me, and for many other people too, AI includes both the GoFi AI and the more modern machine learning AI. And whilst there's a clear advantage, as you can see, to having um, a computer program that does learn and can improve, there are also some advantages to the old school uh, methods of AI, because they're much easier to explain and to help people understand why the machine has made the decision that it has. So there are benefits of both. I don't know, Raj, Kavita, what would you say to in answer to that question? Um, yeah, I'm happy to take that one. I'd actually go one step back, actually, Rose, uh, to say that artificial intelligence can be a very mechanical process as well, and it doesn't really have to be machine learning um, because I think AI at any level, if If you can automate uh, repetitive work uh, to aid a human to a certain extent, that's artificial intelligence. Um, But yes, uh, I have to agree with you, uh, Rose, on on exactly what you said, you know, explainable systems um, and so on. Very, very difficult to achieve with, uh, you know, the more state of the art. Um, However, 
you know, in Synaptic, it's a very hybrid um, uh, system where we do a lot of explaining with uh, old-fashioned rule-based systems. Um, and then, you know, we have more state-of-the-art to do the rest. So, um, yes, I, I completely agree with you. But sometimes artificial intelligence can be very, very rudimentary as well. Thanks, Raj. That's really helpful. And hopefully, Karine, that's going to be useful for Christine as well. Yes, I think that will give her an outline of what the what the terms mean and that actually it's part of the whole. So, but again, in the book, we've actually um, dissected that so people can read that bit by bit, haven't they? So they can get their head around it. So, yeah, and again, as Rose said, there's the um, free chapters on board. So I think that concludes our podcast for today. Uh, And thanks for joining us. We hope you found it enjoyable. It's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from her. Goodbye.